0: Well, I want to invite you to open up your Bibles to Mark chapter 5 as we begin a new chapter in the Gospel of Mark. And it begins with one of the most dynamic and intriguing testimonies of Christ's power in all of the New Testament. If any passage of Scripture should raise our eyebrows and capture our attention, this is one of them. Just listen to this description. It involves a demon-possessed man in a graveyard who has been shackled and bound in chains, who constantly breaks out of them and terrorizes people and cannot be contained. This man is tormented by a legion of demons that have possessed him, and he's constantly screaming among the tombs and the mountains. After all attempts to subdue him by people have failed, he is finally confronted by divine power, only to have the legion of demons cast out of him into a herd of 2,000 pigs that run off a cliff and perish into the sea below. The herdsmen are absolutely terrified, and they go to report all that they have witnessed, which draws a crowd of people begging the divine power to leave their presence. This sounds more like a story that you might hear around Halloween time or a a, a sci-fi blockbuster than it does reality, does it not? Very intriguing, but this is not fiction. This is very real, and we have a great opportunity as we look at this passage to see the life-rescuing and life-transforming power of the Lord Jesus Christ that takes place within it. Let's go ahead and read our passage together, starting in verse 1 of chapter 5. It says this, They came to the other side of the sea into the country of the Gerasenes, and when he got out of the boat, immediately a man from the tombs with an unclean spirit met him. And he had his dwelling among the tombs, and no one was able to bind him any more, even with a chain, because he had often been bound with shackles and chains, and the chains had been torn apart by him, and the shackles broken in pieces, and no one was strong enough to subdue him. Constantly, night and day, He was screaming among the tombs and in the mountains and gashing himself with stones. Seeing Jesus from a distance, he ran up and bowed down before him. And shouting with a loud voice, he said, What business do we have with each other, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I implore you, by God, do not torment me. For he had been saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And he was asking him, What is your name? And he said to him, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he began to implore him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now there was a large herd of swine feeding nearby on the mountain. The demons implored him, saying, Send us into the swine so that we may enter them. Jesus gave them permission. And coming out, the unclean spirits entered the swine. And the herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea, about 2,000 of them, and they were drowned in the sea. Their herdsmen ran away and reported it in the city and in the country. And the people came to see what it was that happened. They came to Jesus and observed the man who had been demon-possessed sitting down, clothed, and in his right mind. The very man who had had the legion. And they became frightened. Those who had seen it described to them how it had happened to the demon-possessed man and all about the swine. And they began to implore him to leave their region. And he was getting into the boat. And the man who had been demon-possessed was imploring him that he might accompany him. And he did not let him, but he said to him, Go home to your people and report to them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in Decapolis what great things Jesus had done for him. And everyone was amazed. This story is a part of a trilogy on Christ's power. Our last message saw Christ's power over nature. And then in today's account, we're going to see Christ's power over this demon-possessed man. And our next passage will reveal his power over death and sicknesses. All of the gospel accounts are purposed in pointing us to Christ's deity. And the gospel of Mark is no different. And if you'll recall, and it seems like so many moons ago, back in Mark chapter 1, verse 1, it said, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. All the gospel accounts direct us to the deity of Christ. Yet they go beyond the scope of evangelism to help us see that because Jesus is God, he can be trusted as Savior. Because he is king, he can be trusted to lead us. Because Jesus is God, he can be trusted to give the best example on how we are to serve as servants. The Gospels help us to see his deity and authority, but they also help us to see so much more. Well, today, Jesus Christ's power reveals his mercy and his ability to save and redeem any life. And Yes, it is featuring the fact that he has power over the demonic realm, but the emphasis here is on Jesus's power and ability to save and transform the life of someone who nobody thought was salvageable. We can be certain that few, if any, gave this man any hope. Yet Jesus wanted to disciple his disciples so that they would trust in the power and ability of the one who would be the center of their lives and ministries. That the gospel that they would one day preach in his name could be preached in power and sufficiency to save and transform the life of any person they ministered to. Jesus Christ can deliver you from anything if you come to him in faith, not only from your miserable, sinful past, but even your sinful present, your hatreds, your prejudices, your lusts. He can not only save your soul, but he can restore your heart to properly love your spouse, your children, your parents any of your unsaved family and friends, even your enemies. And this passage makes known six ways that Christ's power reveals his mercy and authority so that we trust him to save and redeem any life, any life, including yours and mine. Our Lord's power rescues It prevails, it expels, it transforms, it terrifies, and it testifies. And we're going to have a chance to look at each of these, focusing on the first three today and the last three next Sunday. The first way that our Savior's power reveals his mercy and authority is by rescuing. And let's tackle the first five verses by looking at verse 1. It says, They came to the other side of the sea into the country, of the Gerasenes. Nobody can testify more about the Lord Jesus Christ's power to save than those who are stepping off the boat with him. Right now, we recall last week what took place as they were traveling from Capernaum to the east side of the lake to this region for a divine appointment. right? And they were met head-on by this, this horrific storm. And the disciples literally cried out to the Lord Jesus Christ in desperation to be saved from the storm. His mercy and authority were on full display so that they would see their need to trust in Him. And little did they know that there was another storm that was brewing, that was actually already raging within the heart of this demonized man that they were going to encounter and witness as they stepped off the boat, it was a violent, dark, demonic storm waging inside a man who resided near the small town of Gersa, which was located in the middle of the shore on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. We see in graphic detail the darkness that held this man captive in verses 2 through 5. And listen to how commentator James Edwards describes it. The description of the demoniac in verses 2 through 5 is one of the most lamentable stories of human wretchedness in the Bible. He is a terror to himself and others, and his violence is hammered home in three resounding negatives in the Greek. Not even by chains could anyone any longer restrain him. Even in life he is consigned to the land of the dead. There, wailing among the tombs, he wreaks havoc on himself day and night. Mark's vocabulary is raw and brutal. Even bindings, chains, and irons are unsuccessful to subdue the demoniac. Mark's description is more fitting of a ferocious animal than of a human being. Indeed, the Greek word for subdue, damazo, is used of taming a wild beast in James 3.7. The evil forces that torment the man among the tombs equal and parallel the violent tempest that beset the boat. On the lake in Mark 4:37 quote: "Our last encounter with a demon-possessed man takes us all the way back to Mark chapter one in verses 21 through 28, where Jesus just was preaching from synagogue to syn- synagogue. and in Mark's account, he starts at the synagogue, and he encounters a demon-possessed man. And he goes ahead and he casts out the demon. And those who were here for that message, you'll recall that we took some time at that point when we were going through that to expand our understanding of demon possession. And we said that it was actually the worst form of spiritual darkness that exists. We learned that the opposition to Christ in this dark world consists of four contributing factors that need to be properly understood. When it comes to the realm of evil and darkness, there are four key players. Satan, demons, the depravity of man, and demon possession. And this is going to be a little bit of a refresher, but we need to have the context of this to understand what's taking place here. The first contributing factor to darkness in this world is Satan. And his name means adversary, and he's the originator of sin. Satan was the first of the fallen angels that sinned, and he is the chief adversary against God. And he's responsible for the sin and fall of mankind and takes credit for tempting Adam and Eve in the garden. Satan is the personal name of the head of demons. The second contributing factor to darkness in this world is demons. Demons. Demons are evil angels who sinned against God and who now continually work evil in the world. The tactics of both Satan and his demons are one and the same. They use lies, murder, deception, and every other kind of deceptive activity to attempt to cause people to turn away from God and destroy themselves. Demons also try to use temptation, guilt, fear, confusion, sickness, Envy, pride, slander, or any other possible means to hinder a Christian's witness and usefulness. The third contributing factor to darkness in this world is the depravity of man. In this church, it doesn't take much explanation. We understand that the human heart is desperately sick. It's wicked. Jeremiah 17.9, familiar text. Romans 1 reveals that the intentions of evil come from man as a result. And without God's intervention, man is spiritually dead and as a consequence is given over to unlimited potential to do evil. A Puritan writer shared this quote that captures the significance of the depravity of man when he wrote, If not for the common grace of God, we would all be devils incarnate. The fourth contributing factor to darkness in this world is is demon possession, which I previously alluded to is the worst. In cases of demon possession, all three of the previous factors, Satan, demons, and the depravity of man, all work together in unison. They come together. It serves really in a a very uh, dark and depraved and scary way as an unholy trinity. And so we see uh, that Satan, who, who is the head of demons, when he encounters somebody who's demon-possessed, okay? Think about this. So you have the depravity of man, the evil working within the human heart. Then you have a host, a, a, he, that, that person hosts a demon that resides within. And then you have Satan, who is the head of the demons, right? Right? who has direct control. Now, let's amp it up as if that's not bad enough, that there can actually be a legion of demons within someone. An entire army, which we'll understand here in just a moment as I explain it. It is literally a picture of an evil and unholy working that works in congruency. And though each factor can perform evil independently, oftentimes the greatest acts of evil are committed when they function together. And so here in our passage today, this man isn't just possessed by one demon. But well, we find out in verse 9 that a legion of demons resides within him. Legion was a Latin term that was used in the Roman army that represented 6,000 soldiers. Both Jews and Greeks were familiar with this term because of Roman rule that they were subject to. To them, legion brought an image of great numbers, efficient organization, and relentless strength. And though the number may not translate exactly, we can be certain that this man was overtaken and controlled by multiple demonic spirits who even identify themselves as many in verse 9. This man represents the ultimate picture of darkness and despair. Think about it. He cannot rest. These demons that are within are, are thrashing him and throwing him against the rocks. Says that he's, he's gashed. And because he's terrorizing, really the demons through him are terrorizing other people in an effort to protect themselves. The people living in the region, they've tried to, to tackle him and to, to put him in, in bondage. But he's able to tear out of of the chains and the bonds. He's able to break them. He is left only to scream day and night, living in the torment of evil darkness. Who or what could possibly save him? Who or what could ever change him? Who could possibly possess the power to overcome his evil, desperate, and wicked condition? The Lord Jesus Christ was about to show this man, show his disciples and anyone else who was over in this region of the Gerasenes that he possesses the power and that he alone is sufficient to rescue even if a person is in possession or being possessed by a legion of 6,000 demons. And every one of us that believes is is rescued also from the domain of darkness and Colossians 1:13 says this directly for he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son what mercy what mercy we see here on on the the, the Lord's part this this region without question i had, had already developed a reputation And in the synoptic gospel accounts and the other accounts in Matthew and Luke, it actually mentions two two men. But interestingly here, it, it appears that Mark is focused on the worst of the two men. And so we see this. And I hope that your hearts encouraged that we have a merciful Savior. Amen? We live out there, we have a merciful, merciful God. And that he was moved with compassion. That he was willing to go where nobody else was willing to go. And he does the same for us. And it's only by God's grace that you nor I have ever experienced the level of spiritual darkness that we're seeing in this man. It's only by God's grace. And our takeaway is that Christ's power through the gospel, can save us to the uttermost. And the Lord's power displays His mercy and authority to rescue anyone. And this passage helps you and I to see that. The question that you and I have to answer is, do we believe it? Do we believe it? Certainly, as it relates to personal application, your faith is validated that you believe it for yourself, But the question this passage also challenges us to consider as we see the desperate condition of this demoniac is do we see the gospel's sufficiency to rescue anyone? To rescue the homeless person? To rescue the drug addict? To rescue the prostitute? To rescue the Islamic terrorist? Do we see its sufficiency? And a good litmus test is to take a good hard look at who we're willing to share the gospel with. The truth is that I believe, and, and this is a, a testimony I'll share just even from my own heart, that I don't believe that anyone in this room who is born again doubts the sufficiency of the gospel to save. But as it relates, to anyone, I think that we would all agree in principle, but as it relates to practice, that's where the rubber meets the road. Are we willing to reach out and allow our testimony and our evangelism to impact people that we might see as unsalvageable? Certainly a takeaway from this passage. Well, the second way that Christ's power reveals his mercy and authority so that we trust him to save and redeem any life, including yours and mine, can be seen in verses 6 and 7. Our Lord's power prevails. Let's take a look closer look at these verses. Beginning in verse 6, it says, Seeing Jesus from a distance, he ran up and bowed down before him. And shouting with a loud voice, he said, What business do we have with each other, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I implore you by God, do not torment me. These verses need some explanation because the aggression and the, the uh, initial confrontation comes from the demonic man who probably attacked anyone who came into this region. And so Jesus and the disciples, I'm sure the demoniac noticed that there were a number of boats that were coming from over and because he doesn't rest, you know, even though it was during the night, howling, right? He sees and goes out to give them probably the same greeting that he gave anyone who showed up on that side of the lake. Jesus and his disciples appeared to have at least received that same welcome. Listen to how one commentator describes it. Mark's narrative framework implies that demonic powers are intent on prohibiting Jesus from entering the region. First, the demonic nature of the storm on the lake nearly capsizes the boat. Now, a demon possessed man, powerful enough to break irons, hurls himself at Jesus and the disciples. This is a place where no one wanted to go for any reason. Contrary to all reason and expectation, however, Jesus goes there. He penetrates both the ritual wall of uncleanness and the formidable reputation of the demoniac. For once, however, the explosive terror of the demoniac does not prevail. For rather than falling on Jesus, he fell on his knees and shouted at the top of his voice, swear to God that you won't torture me. The Greek verb for fell on his knees denotes prostrating oneself before a person to whom reverence or worship is due. He finishes with this quote, when demoniac meets divine, it is a no contest event, end quote. And here we can clearly see the Lord's power prevails over demonic powers. And interestingly, to note, this demon who is speaking on behalf of the Legion, he employs the same language that the demon back in Mark chapter 1, verses 21 through 28 shared. Demons, as I mentioned earlier, they're fallen angels. And so they're very familiar with who the Lord Jesus Christ is. And the light of his presence torments them. The radiance of his presence. And it serves as a reminder of their limited time on earth and their impending judgment that's coming. Demons know that they're on God's clock. They know that they're on his eschatological clock. They know that the time's coming when Satan and they will be banished. They'll be cast into the eternal lake of fire of God's judgment. And their temporary access to this world and Satan's dominion of darkness will be over. The question that often rises uh, from this passage and other uh, passages that are similar in, in the Gospel accounts and of course in the book of Acts is whether demon possession still occurs today. And if so, how are believers to deal with it? And there are plenty of professing believers on both sides of the fence when it comes to this issue when we look at the this, the the landscape of evangelical churches, there's even some intermediate positions. The differing views are typically connected to doctrinal distinctions between the sign gifts or miraculous gifts, are oftentimes called the apostolic gifts, and whether or not a Christian believes that they're still applicable for today. And these gifts, if you're not familiar or you're hearing them for the first time, what were the the, the miraculous gifts, they were um, healing by b- being able to touch someone and heal, heal them. It was speaking in tongues. It was also casting out demons. And so our church, just so you know, um, and, well, let me explain this first. Those who, who believe that the, the, the gifts were limited to the apostolic period, who believe that those gifts no longer take place today, they believe that they've ceased, those people would be called uh, cessationists. okay? And a person that believes that they're still in existence and that Christians um, or church leaders could still perform these acts, they're called non-cessationists. And our church teaches and holds to a cessationist view. Now, just because we hold to a cessationist view doesn't mean that we don't believe that demon possession isn't possible. Our view is going to be developed and based on the word of God and what he has to say about it. And it's important to define demon possession and also distinguish it from demonic influence. True demon possession involves a demon or demons indwelling a person's body with a demon Exercising living control over its victim, which cannot be successfully resisted. These features of demonic indwelling and control distinguish demonization from the lesser forms of demonic influence that may accompany temptation and sin and spiritual oppression. Jesus's illustration in Matthew 12 verses 43 to 45, clearly shows that demons desire to indwell persons. I want you to turn there with me. Actually, Matthew chapter 12, verses 43 through 45, and let's read it together. Starting in verse 33, Jesus is saying this, Now when the unclean spirit goes out of a man, it passes through waterless places seeking rest. And does not find it. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds it unoccupied, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and takes along with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself. And they go in and live there. And the last state of that man becomes worse than the first. That is the way it will also be with this evil generation. The context here is critical to understand. And it involves Jesus having just casted out a demon. And the Pharisees um, are there. And this leads to denunciations from the Pharisees. And then Jesus responds or ends with sobering warnings of them of judgment to come. And the account of the wandering demon is the last of these warnings. And Jesus was using Uh, the exorcism and demonology to illustrate to this generation the fact and nature of their judgment. Thus, one should not be surprised to find figurative expressions here, but the teaching is true and accurate as it relates to the picture of the facts relating to the demonic realm. The potential people who can be demon-possessed, according to the context in our Lord's illustration, are the unbelieving evil generation. The word generation in this passage can also be translated offspring, so evil offspring. And this is why an unbeliever, I want you to see this, can say, well, I would never do this. Or I would never do that. You hear people say that. I would never commit suicide. I would never murder anyone, right? Right? An unbeliever cannot say that because they're vulnerable. They could potentially be possessed by a demon or worse yet, a legion of demons that could have them perform some act of evil that they never even thought was possible. And I believe that we see occurrences of this Taking place in, in the world just as it relates to uh, the mass murdering and some of the things that we're, we're seeing just with ISIS and uh, war and terror and just wicked, wicked nature. But this is where our heart needs to be encouraged. There is no clear example in the Bible where a demon ever inhabited or invaded a believer. Never in the New Testament epistles are believers warned about the possibility of being inhabited by demons. Neither do we see anyone rebuking, binding, or casting demons out of a true believer. The epistles never instruct believers to cast out demons, whether from a believer or an unbeliever. Christ and the apostles were the only ones who cast out demons, and in every instance the demon-possessed people were unbelievers. Quote, John MacArthur. We don't see it. We don't see it. And so what are we to do about the potential demon-possessed unbelievers as Christians? Are we to chase Satan and demons? Nowhere, at least in the the Bible that I'm reading, it it, it lets us know that Satan pursues us, right? 1 Peter 5.8 seeking to devour us like a roaring lion? Nowhere in the scriptures are are, are we commanded to, to chase him. Are we to perform exorcisms and bind Satan when the Bible gives Christians no instruction in the Bible? It should drive us right back to our study today, and we should cling to the fact that the Lord's power prevails. The power of Christ, through the gospel, can liberate, any demon-possessed person, and overcome any contributing factor of evil. And this is a display of Christ's mercy and authority. And what a blessing for us to consider as believers, that we can never be possessed by Satan or by demons. I mean, how, how we're sealed, Ephesians 1.13, we're sealed by the Holy Spirit, interesting, when we go back to that passage in Matthew 12, uh, 43 through 35, it talks about the, the demon that resided within, that he went, and then he came back. Because what? Everything was all picked up, and nobody was residing there. Who resides within us? The house is taken, my friends. It's off the market. It's not possible for a demon to come in because we have been sealed we have been taken possession of, and we are God's possession. And we see a number of scriptures that help us to see this. But the Lord is faithful. His power prevails in protecting us. Second Thessalonians 3.3 3 says, But the Lord is faithful, and he will strengthen and protect you from the evil one. 1 John 5.18 We know that no one who is born of God sins, but he who has born of God keeps him, and the evil one does not touch him. Mm-hmm. Old M.C. Hammer song, can't touch this. I mean, blast the past, right? You, I mean, that's the truth, though. We, we, we cannot be touched. Now, remember what I said, it was important to distinguish. Doesn't mean that we cannot be influenced. Doesn't mean that the, the, the presence of, of, of demonic influence and temptation and the war that's taking place that only God can see in the end isn't, isn't happening. And that's why we have scriptures that give us guidance, right? James 4, 7, submit yourself to God, right? We submit ourselves to God. Resist. The devil, resist any temptations, anything that can come, and it says that he'll flee. Ephesians 6, putting on the full armor of God to stand firm in the strength of his might and that the shield of faith will extinguish the fiery darts of the enemy, right? Good scriptures to keep in mind. And we have a God of mercy and we have a God of authority, that, and, and, and what a comfort. I hope that's a comfort to your heart. Considering all the darknesses and, and the contributing factors that, 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 that exist. And really as it relates, then if we cannot be possessed by Satan, we cannot be possessed by demons. What was the, that third factor? Oh, the depravity of the heart. The depravity of the old man. That's where the battleground exists, right? Right? That's that's where where our growth and our sanctification and our fight, and of course those other factors can still throw things, temptations and and influences our way, but they cannot ever, ever possess us, church. And that is a powerful truth from the Scriptures. Well, not only does the Lord's power rescue and prevail, but our Lord's power expels. Look at verse 8. For he had been saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. Ancient Greek writings inform us that there are many long and convoluted formulas that magicians and uh, those who practice divination, spiritual mediums, that they, they had these big, long spells, and they had these formulas that would take place when they would try to perform an exorcism. They used spells and catchwords as they sparred with demonic opponents to gain advantage over them, which usually proved to be unsuccessful. And here in verse 8, our Lord, his power expels. James Edwards says, the unclean spirit is expelled from the demon-possessed man solely by the authoritative word of Jesus. With Jesus, there is no elaborate protocol, nor is the effectiveness of the exorcism dependent on the words he utters. The power to prevail over the demonic resides within Jesus himself. He speaks, and the demons are expelled. His word is deed, end quote. Great, great uh, statement, powerful statement. And interestingly, we see some of these uh, occult practices that uh, bleed into the, the scriptures in the Old Testament as Baal worship and child sacrifice uh, took place and with, with some of the, the false deities. And then when we get into the New Testament, Acts 16.16, 16, it describes a girl who was said to have a spirit of divination. And you may recall in Acts 19 where the apostle Paul performed a number of miracles and exorcisms. Turn there with me, Acts, Acts 19, so you can see another example of our lord's power to expel starting in verse 11 of acts 19 this is a, this is a, an extraordinary passage i love this text it says starting in verse 11 god was performing extraordinary mi- miracles by the hands of paul so that the handkerchiefs or aprons were even carried from his body to to the sick and the diseases left them and the evil spirits went out. Time out, just for a second. So when when you want to talk about um, the sign gifts with somebody and you're having a conversation, this is a really good verse to keep in mind right here because who else was the other person? Oh, actually, we're going to study that. It's coming up in Mark. That somebody who was sick or had an infirmity could reach out and just touch the cloak of his garment. What's that man's name? Lord Jesus Christ, right? And he felt the power, right? And here it says in this verse that even the, the handkerchiefs, even the, the aprons that, that, that Paul possessed, they were being used, right? To be, be, because the, the apostles had a specific authority that came directly from the Lord Jesus Christ when they were sent out to do this very thing. All right, that's a whole other sermon, but we'll, let's continue. Verse 13, But also some of the Jewish exorcists who went from place to place attempted to name over those who had the evil spirits, the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, I adjure you by Jesus whom Paul preaches. Verse 14, seven sons of one Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. And the evil spirit answered and said to them, I recognize Jesus. And I know about Paul, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them and subdued all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. And this became known to all, both Jews and Greeks who lived in Ephesus, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord was being magnified many also of those who had believed kept coming confessing and disclosing their practices and many of those who practiced magic brought their books together and began burning them in the sight of everyone and they counted up the price of them and found it 50,000 pieces of silver which a modern day translation would be about a million dollars which is a lot of books right million dollars worth of books lit on fire, because they saw that it was worthless. They saw the true power. Verse 20, so the word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing. And when the Lord's power expels, the result is undeniable. Satan knows it. Demons know it. The apostles knew it. And every believer who professes Christ must know it because that same power and presence of Christ resides in each of us. And it can overcome any factor of spiritual darkness or any evil that we may encounter on this side of the cross. According to 1 John four, 4 the power of the indwelling Spirit of God is greater than he who is in the world, he being Satan, which also includes his demons, or any demon-possessed person. Again, it is the same Christ-infused gospel power that can rescue, prevail, and expel any form of spiritual darkness. Listen to what happens back in our passage in Mark 5, in in verses 9 through 13. And he was asking him, What is your name? And he said to him, my name is Legion, for we are many. And he began to implore, implore him earnestly not to send them out of the country. And just real quick, the, the word that in, in the Greek country, it could actually mean region. And it was the region of the Gerasenes. It wasn't a specific country. Or it was the, the country as in, um, I live in the city or a metropolitan area, and you live out in the country. Y'all, picking up when I'm laying down? Okay, so th- th- that's how it's, it's best interpreted, either as a region or the actual country. And, and verse 14 kind of even indicates this. But th- verse 11, Now there was a large herd of swine feeding nearby on the mountain. The demons implored him, saying, Send us into the swine so that we may enter them. Jesus gave them permission And coming out, the unclean spirits entered the swine and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea, about 2,000 of them, and they were drowned in the sea. Now, if you're a math person, and I know we have a few of you in the room, your brains are already thinking, well, okay, there was 2,000 swine and he said a legion is 6,000 and so how am I reconciling this? And... uh, What's taking place? Don't don't, I'm I'm encouraging you. Don't get caught up in that, right? The reality is is that a a, a demon could enter an unbelieving person or an animal, right? More than one demon could go in a host, and perhaps you're thinking that this must mean maybe that there were two thousand demons that were in this man. We don't we don't want to get caught up in that. We don't want to get caught up. The thing that we want to see is that there was tremendous evil power present that was cast out of this man. So much so that it was able to capture uh, two thousand head, and and I grew, I worked on a hog confinement that had eight thousand at, at one point, and so I can't imagine when you're talking about. Um, you know, though they're not as big as buffalo, but if they were all to take off running, 2,000, you're just talking about a ton, uh, <laughs> tons of of pork and power. I mean, that's uh, that's serious, very serious. And even if we go back to Acts 19 account, it was one demon that was able to successfully subdue and overcome all seven of the sons of Sceva, right? So if somebody ever asks you, you know, how many people does it take to subdue a demon? More than seven. And who knows? Maybe 700. We don't know. We don't know. But the the, the point and and the takeaway for us is that there is no sufficiency to deal with the power. There is no adequacy, right? That we have to be rescued from it. That it has to be uh, that, that that the Lord Jesus Christ has to prevail over it, and that only he can expel it our lord's power to expel such a powerful legion is what we need to remember here and though the demons beg Jesus to enter the swine, his granting permission shouldn't minimize the fact that they were expelled from the man, and if a student gets expelled from school the fact is they cannot stay in school and where they spend their time outside of school well, that's a that's a whole separate matter and that seems to be the case in this story the herdsman losing 2000 pigs was no small matter but in the eyes of Jesus the rescue and restoration of one person is more important than any financial or material loss compared to the redemption of a human being, it wasn't even questioned. It wasn't even close. We can be sure this man was grateful that such a sacrifice was made on his behalf so that his life could be spared and restored. And how much more should we be grateful when we realize that we have been rescued and restored by the Son of God who willingly came to this hellish earth and willingly gave his life for us. He is the way of salvation. And only he has the power to save. His power rescues. His power prevails. His power expels on our behalf. And next Sunday, we're going to have a chance to see how it transforms how it terrifies, and lastly, how it testifies. All right, please pray with me. Gracious Father, our eyes are fixed on you this morning, and certainly we see the incredible power of the Lord Jesus Christ in this passage. And... We're reminded of the great power that flows out of him. And because of the gospel, because of the cord of the gospel that you threw to us as we were drowning in our sea of sin. And though we may not have been demon-possessed or had a legion of demons within us we were still depraved and we were still greatly influenced and lost living for this world and yet you did that very thing you threw the cord of the gospel to us and you allowed us to grab hold and not only did you rescue us but you redeemed us you gave us new value You allowed your purposes to prevail. And Father, I'm eager to get to the second half of this story that allows us to see the the true impact that you made in this man's life. It It is so worthy of you. It is an awesome account. And I pray that our hearts as a church family can be encouraged as we've gotten to study it. And as we consider your power to save and your power to sanctify us that will continue to trust you in great measure, that we'll see your mercy and that we'll see your authority and the direction and the freedom that it can provide for each and every one of us. We thank you for our church. We ask that you'll bless the remainder of our time this morning, that you'll allow us just to be encouraged by our interactions one to another. We give you thanks and praise. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.